0: This is the John Oakley Show Podcast. Here we go, Hour 3. Boy, we're just clipping along all kinds of wonderful stuff to discuss. This a particularly great day for talk radio when we've got our buddy Dan Riskin coming in, the Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality, and he regales us with all kinds of fascinating facts <laughs> and uh, such from science. Dan, it's always great. Uh, I love it when you come in because I learn a wealth of things uh, that I heretofore had no idea about. And uh, one such is that Rattlesnake venom isn't always so bad. What are you talking about?
1: Yeah, you know, I've always had this thing about rattlesnakes. I've always been obsessed with them. I mean, back when I was doing my PhD on bats, there was this guy that uh, was another grad student, and he was the klutziest man on earth. Like, every time he came to my house, a plate broke. Every time. And he studied rattlesnakes. And he would go out into the field... And this was like, he got no cell reception where he was and he'd go out there and he'd catch rattlesnakes by himself and he'd like do surgery on them and put like transponders in them and then let them go. And the whole time I was thinking like, this is just a recipe for death. This guy <laughs> is definitely going to die. And one of his favorite facts was that uh, when you get bitten by a rattlesnake, uh, they only inject half the time. They Half the time they do what's called a dry bite. So they bite you, but they don't really want to get you. And in fairness, they're using that venom for hunting. They're not using it so much for defense. So if they, you know, if they get a small mammal, they want to use their venom for that. If they're biting you to make you go away, it's kind of a waste of venom. Mm. So, uh, so anyway, as a result of the fact that rattlesnake bites half the time have no venom in them that's why there are so many weird snake bite remedies because any weird thing you try will work half the time so a lot of people have these weird snake remedies that that work but anyway the the paper that just came out which caught my eye and brought me back to all this stuff is uh, a paper out of florida that shows that even within rattlesnakes there's huge variability in how bad their venom is i mean we sort of know that snake venom is super bad but they took uh, they caught like 37 snakes and they milked the venom out of them and then they caught a bunch of very poor lizards these poor like (laughs) brown animals, these invasive lizards that live in Florida. They caught hundreds of them and they just injected them with different amounts of venom from different snakes and did this whole analysis and they found that some snakes were like way, way, way more venomous than other ones and sometimes the venom didn't even kill the lizard. It was totally fine.
0: So which species, I mean, are particularly toxic because golfers want to know when you're playing some of those uh, courses, you know, with the mangrove swamps and stuff like that. Alligators are one thing, but the snake uh, thing as well. Uh, Which ones are particularly toxic?
1: Yeah, well, when it comes to snakes, I tend to have this, like, all, you know, ask later, just assume they're all terrible. So, I mean, don't go near any snake thinking you've figured out which kind of rattlesnake it might be because it does have this variability in the venom. The really scary ones are the, they're called diamondback rattlesnakes, and they can get super, super big. These, uh, These ones that they study here were called pygmy rattlesnakes, they're much smaller and of course Ontario has the massasauga rattlesnake pretty docile, not very venomous, not very dangerous um, I I don't remember the numbers offhand but very I don't even think anybody's died from those I've, or maybe one or two in the history of Canada or something like that but massasauga rattlesnakes nothing to worry about but that's the thing when you see a snake and you don't you don't have the context you're not sure, I have this story that I was just telling my kids the other night while I was trying to put them to bed and for some reason they wouldn't fall asleep after this but I was once catching bats and a big, bright yellow snake fell out of a tree and landed right on the net that I was trying to take bats out of. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I don't know how venomous it was because I just ran away. <laughs> I just I just took off. And by the time I got back, the snake was gone. And, and, of course, I'm not a snake person, so I couldn't identify it. But it was bright yellow, and that's usually a sign that they're venomous.
0: Well, here in Canada, I guess the only place where we've got the venomous rattlesnake, the Massasauga that you alluded to, uh, that's on the northern shore of uh, Georgian Bay. Yep. And actually, there's a, a rattlesnake sanctuary on Bosley Island
1: yeah yeah and we do and also if you go out west if you head to um i think lethbridge alberta is i think the only major city in canada that has rattlesnakes within the border so there are some uh, prairie rattlesnakes that live out there and and once you get into bc you can find some rattlesnake habitat so there's a few and rattlesnakes have that that big name you know they have the rattle and so they're kind of intimidating but really they're they're really quiet creatures the rattle is there to say please leave me alone Uh, if you hear a rattle it's just saying get away and usually that's enough and you do get away but what's really neat about rattlesnakes and biology is that what they'll do is that they'll they'll smell they have incredible sense of smell they'll smell a trail on a on, in the forest where little rodents are running by and they find the trail by its smell and then they sit and they wait for like a day and they don't even move and then a, a poor little rodent uses its trail it goes running down there and what the snake does is it hits the it catches the rodent bites it injects the venom and then lets it go it doesn't want to fight it and then this this poor rodent that has now been envenomated runs away and And disappears into the forest. And the snake knows if it got it or not. And if it did get it, it follows the smell of the footsteps of this thing for hours until it comes to the dead body lying somewhere else in the forest so it's a really neat hunting technique they don't grab it and hold it to kill it they they nail it let it go and then follow it the smell of its footsteps to find it again so rattlesnakes are just fascinating creatures and the fact that there's this much variability in how toxic their venom is just makes it all the more interesting i mean does that snake know how to, what the likelihood is that it actually killed that thing that it bit or or does it have to guess
0: Wow. Uh, well, that's a premise for a horror flick on Netflix <laughs> or something like that.
1: Jeez. That's a good idea.
0: Yeah, well, uh, the hunting, uh, by the way, you know, I remember I was up at Severn Bridge and I was playing a golf course as I was pulling in. They have a sign on the road, break for snakes.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. I guess
0: they proliferate there. Yeah, and saying.
1: if you go just to Leslie Spit, I mean, I love going there, especially in the summer, um, you know, snakes will bask on the road. They'll they'll use the heat of the sun to warm up, and so they'll be out on the road. And so uh, it's a lot of, a lot of uh, cold-blooded animals, frogs, uh, snakes, turtles, you'll find them on roads. So, at certain times of year, you definitely have to watch for those things, yeah?
0: All right. So, when it bites the rattlesnake, how quickly would it replenish its venom?
1: Well, that's a good question. I don't actually know the answer to that, but it does take on the order of weeks. And so there's there's definitely a cost to them and they don't want to waste their venom. And, and it's neat because the, the squirrels or the ground squirrels, they're into this too. And, and the, the the snake's whole strategy is to be hidden and to strike without warning. And so if a squirrel finds a snake, it just, it starts yelling at the snake or crows will do this too. And they're like, I see you, I see you, I see you. And they jump around it. And the snake is just like, well, now I'm never going to catch anything. And then the snake leaves. Uh-huh. So you have all these behaviors that these animals have. To say, I found you, and they mob them and they drive them crazy, and then the snake is just like I'm I'm leaving. So it's it's a whole part of the biology that it has to stay hidden. And uh, you gotta respect rattlesnakes. There, I mean, I get that venomous snakes are scary, but you gotta respect them. They're just beautiful animals that do really cool things. Right.
0: And if human beings are traipsing through the woods along a trail, I'm guessing the tremors or the vibrations that you're sending out, the snake is pretty mindful that something big's coming along,
1: right? Yes, but that might I mean they might not move, right? It depends how warm they are and how easy it is to move. If are really cold, so they might not have the ability to move. My my master's advisor, you'd love to make a joke about snakes in the forest. Whenever we were walking down a trail, he'd say, okay, well, the first guy wakes it up, the second guy pisses it off, and the third one gets it. That's what's going to happen. So uh, that's not science. That's just a funny story. But, you know, the, the point is, that even if they do hear you coming, you still you may walk right past it without even knowing. Yeah.
0: Well, I know up uh, in Perry Sound, the local hospital has uh, all kinds of anti-venom serum yeah. there on, uh, yeah. and... Uh, they, they don't want to let anybody know, you know, how many uh, hits they have to dispense on a, yeah. an annual basis, but uh, that's probably better left unsaid. Yeah. Again, Dan Riskin's with us, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. I want to get to this story as well. Uh, it has to do with people playing music together and how they stay in sync by moving their bodies. What's that about?
1: Yeah, it's a neat, it's a really neat question that uh, researchers at McMaster are tackling. And basically, uh, you know, if, if you play music with a group, you know that you make eye contact with each other and you know that you move a little bit and you bounce your head and stuff like that. And so what they did is they put motion tracking stuff all over a trio of musicians. I think it's a cellist and a violinist and and a pianist and they were playing together and they said, I want you to play, you know, they had uh, six pieces of music, and they said, "I want you to play them each twice, uh, either very emotionally or not emotionally." And when the people played the pieces emotionally, uh, they moved their bodies. And the more emotional the piece was, as rated by them, and as rated by people just listening to the music and not even watching it, not even just just hearing recordings of it, um, the more emotional, the more they move their bodies. And so, what and, and the the body movements are highly correlated. So what this suggests is that when musicians are playing um, it's not just a matter of staying in sync and keeping the same rhythm, but sometimes for an emotional piece, you go off the rhythm a little bit. You make these micro-adjustments to hold a note a little longer or to get into, some, go through something a little faster. And by moving your body, you can communicate to your fellow musicians what you're doing so they can follow you, and you can stay emotional and stay in sync. And, uh, I mean, I was just listening to... Um, to some uh, Tragically Hip while I was on my way in. And you think about that band, and if you ever had a chance to see them live, the way they would just go off and, disappear down some rabbit hole of a music riff and then come back and you'd see them all moving around you wondered how they were communicating because they were you know playing around and, and not playing it the way it was recorded on the album and and so how they do those silent communications has always been interesting to me and so it's really cool to have data now that show that those body movements really are a part of how they're sending the communication back and forth and that that body movement stuff is heightened whenever it's emotional
0: well, it's interesting because I'm thinking, like, uh, well, take the Rolling Stones and Jagger. I mean, you know, it's very obvious. The guy's moving around and uh, dancing like, uh, you know, <laughs> he's wired up. Uh, and then you got... Well, in the day, the drummer, Charlie Watt, basically... Not moving. Not moving. He's looking at him like he's disdainful
1: of the dude. Yeah. His lip moves sometimes, yeah. Right. No, absolutely. And different different groups play different ways. I mean, this was uh, a group playing some uh, pieces, you know, that were sheet music that had been played, that had been written, um, and that were provided by the researchers. But uh, you wonder about jazz musicians and... Because, and, I mean, the Stones, the other thing about the Stones is they've played uh, Stir It Up or Stir Me Up or whatever that song is. I mean, start Me Up. Start yeah. Me Up, yeah. Mm. They've played it more times than, mm. you know, I've said the word obviously so they you know for them it might be old hat and also they they probably don't change it very much from performance to performance but when you have I'm not saying they're not great musicians. They, of course, they are in their own right. But when you have people that are improvising and creating and doing something new and trying to take risks, um, you know, for a group to do that together is just really interesting. And, and of course, it's not just about music. It, if you're moving a couch with some people, you've got to find a way to communicate and move together. Um, and there are all kinds of things we do in our daily lives with other people and our bodies and moving around, uh, just navigating through a crowd or at a concert in the crowd. I mean, there are all kinds of different places where we communicate physically with each other And so this might be just the tip of the iceberg in terms of what's possible.
0: Yeah, you see that most pronounced, I guess, in gospel singers, you know, the swing and everything. Absolutely. What you're basically saying here, though, is the nonverbal cues are uh, really, really significant here, and uh, we may not appreciate the extent to which.
1: Yes, and that it it really seems to be linked to emotionality. It's the emotion of the music that really brings it out. And that makes sense. And so they played happy songs, and they played sad songs. And actually, I found this interesting, but it was the happy songs that had more movement. Um, but, But you could definitely... People listening to the recordings could tell if they were uh, moving or not. They they weren't asked, are you move? Are they moving or not moving? But if they listened to the recording, the ones where the musicians were moving, they said those sound more emotional than mm. the other recording.
0: I think at the halftime show in the Super Bowl, people might have been prodded to move when Adam Levine and Maroon Five yeah, were yeah. playing. Yeah,
1: yeah, was... <laughs> yeah. That's that's that. They didn't. That wasn't their control in this study of non-emotional music, but they could have used it.
0: Hey, I've got to ask you finally. When you say you uh, studied and did your masters in bats?
1: Yeah, I'm a bat guy. So I came to I. I came to york university back in like 1998 to do a master's on bats i went to costa rica went to belize and then i went down to the states and did a phd on vampire bats we should talk about this next time but i put vampire bats on a treadmill that was my claim to fame i was looking at how they move on the ground because most bats can't crawl vampire bats are super good on the ground so i put vampire bats on a treadmill that was my uh that was my shtick and uh, that got me through grad school and then uh, i went on from there
0: all right. I've got to ask you the obvious. Vampire bats, as the name implies, I mean, there's sort of mythology built around it, but are they really dangerous to human beings?
1: Yeah, they are. There was So, I mean, not us, but uh, they do drink blood of mammals, and there are cases where they feed on people. But usually, like, people living in a remote Amazon tribe, uh, if there are cows nearby, they much prefer cows. But vampire bats drink blood. They get all the food they need from blood. It's a mammal that has become a parasite, like a fly. It's amazing. So if you think about it, your blood has everything in it that your body needs, because you eat food, and that's how it gets to the rest of your body. So vampire bats just tap into some other animal's blood, drink all the good stuff, and put it to their body. But it's, it's required all these changes to the normal physiology of a mammal. So vampire bats are uh, super weird. They can crawl well on the ground. They have heat sensors on their nose, so they can put it up against the side of a cow and tell what the temperature is to find capillaries close to the skin. They've got all kinds of really neat stuff, but, um, but the big thing is they'll sneak up on a cow and they'll bite its toe, and then the cow will try to step on it, so it has to jump out of the way and then run back over and so that terrestrial ability is what I was looking at And, and the discovery I made is that when you put them on a treadmill they can even run which no other bat can do other bats just walk and these ones had a running weird gait wow yeah, it's yeah. weird stuff.
0: So how do you identify the vampire bat versus the common fruit bat?
1: Uh they have just a very different face and if they bite you you bleed way more. <laughs> oh, really <laughs> well they have like razor sharp teeth and so the way a vampire bat makes its wound is uh you know like a normal fruit bat if it's defending itself cuz you've caught it it might it might clamp down on you but a vampire bat it's got like uh, a razor in the front of its mouth so it just slides its teeth along your skin and uh and you're bleeding. I mean it's amazing. But you don't have to, if listeners you can go to f- Mexico where they live and you won't you'll never see one in a million years. They feed on cattle. Everything's fine.
0: So they don't swarm people. No,
1: no, no, no. And and they they get cows when cows are asleep. I mean, you could write a good, you you could write Dracula. It's scary (laughs) if you're a cow, but I'm telling you, I've been to places with vampire bats and no one I know has ever been uh, bitten by a vampire bat when they were sleeping.
0: I love their sonar too. The capacity for, uh, you know, in real time, uh, just negotiating all kinds of places and they're flying in a sort of haphazard fashion. Totally. Fascinating to see at dusk. It's always great stuff, Dan. I appreciate it, and we've got to have you back Yeah, let's real do it. soon. You got it, Dan Riskin, Canadian evolutionary biologist and media personality. Great stuff. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.